Welcome to Mothering, a podcast that explores Indian mothering through true stories. I am Veena Hari, a mental health professional, a feminist, a mother, and founder of Bhavati Foundation, a not-for-profit that works on reproductive mental health. There are so many things I wish someone told me before I became a mother. But the true mothering stories of Indian women are rare and hard to find. This podcast hopes to bring these stories together. We ask some uncomfortable questions about the way things are around mothering today and find some unexpected answers to the rich and varied lived experiences of our guests. So grab a steaming cup of your favorite beverage and get comfortable for this heart-to-heart to find awe, joy and some tears in these true stories. I hope you find the story you need to hear. know even non-birthing partners can experience postpartum depression in today's episode of mothering we talked to mental health therapist sneha padhye who's doing her fellowship in perinatal mental health about the impact of the changes that can happen after a new baby is born on the entire family unit sneha brings in her wisdom and experience and makes us reflect when does the journey of parenthood really begin is it when the baby is in the womb or way before that when the baby is just an idea a mother of a teenager herself snehal also shares with us how she navigates feminism motherhood and being a therapist and how all these roles inform each other i hope you enjoy this conversation welcome to the seventh episode of our podcast mothering and thank you so much snehal for coming on as a guest to our podcast how are you doing today Thank you Veena for having me. I'm excited about what this is going to be like. Uh this for probably for the first time that somebody is calling me for a podcast. So thank you. I'm going to quickly tell the audiences a little bit about you. Uh so Snehal is a trained mental health practitioner. She's a therapist, but she started her career as a teacher of applied chemistry. I find that really interesting <laughs> the switch from chemistry to psychology and of course she went on to learn psychology in order to be better at teaching and being with teenagers and young adults but that experience kind of uh, grew her love so much for the field and in grew her interest so much that she actually shifted careers from applied chemistry to psychology um gain for the field of psychology <laughs> this change of career was also at the start of a mothering experience uh, so a break from work to learn psychology and learning to be a mother these kind of two things happened together for her and from then on she's kind of had no looking back this was back in 2007 uh, currently she has a private practice in bangalore and she's also in the process of founding an initiative called cozy co and that's with her co-founder who's therapist shamli um I looked at your website it looks absolutely lovely. Uh the vision of Cozy Hope is basically to democratize mental health spaces and to acknowledge people's experiences of trauma and resilience and to empower them to heal. I think this is such an important space uh even they even hope to promote community mental health services and community spaces as we know are something that's so critical to the entire process. Right? Um Snehal is also doing a fellowship in perinatal mental health. 
uh, and this is under the guidance of a perinatal mental health specialist, psychiatrist, uh, Dr. Ashlesha Bagaria. That's exactly how Snehal and I got in touch uh, because, of course, uh, Bhavati is also working in the area of reproductive mental health and hence perinatal mental health. Um, so yeah, uh, Snehal and I had have recently we recently met for coffee for the first time. Uh, and I don't know if I should call it coffee anymore because it just went on to lunch and <laughs> it was just hours, hours and hours of conversation. And it was it was really not like I met you for the first time. I don't know what that was. But yeah, I mean, it just felt like so many things that um, I wanted to say. I think one thing we discovered and we were talking about is how as therapists, we don't have access to other therapists uh, often. You know, it's not something that we come across very often. So also to share those small niggly bits of, you know, oh, you know, <laughs> this part of practice, etc. I think that, uh, you know, I found really lovely about you. So thank you so much for that. Thank you also for the grace to just be so open and meet someone who like this Enthu Cutlet person who's calling you and being like, let's meet, let's talk, let's meet, let's talk and actually being given. <laughs> so thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Veena. Uh, it was uh, absolute, uh, you know, pleasure to meet you that day and today as well. Really looking forward to having more conversations with you. And I agree that day's conversation, you know, uh, started with coffee and ended with lunch, and that also felt did not feel enough. So, yeah, right, absolutely. Okay, so let's dive right into it. I'm very excited about the th things we're going to talk about today. I think they're so important. Uh, so let's just begin and let's start with, you know, my favorite question. Uh, do you identify yourself as a feminist? And what does your, what did your feminist journey look like? Yeah, I think uh, over the years, I have uh, understood feminism uh, differently. Uh, as in, uh, I remember starting... Uh, and recognizing myself as a feminist when I think I was around 10 years old. Uh, I think that was a time when I was uh, questioning and pointing things out to my mother as to why are things different for me and my brother. And I think that's how my journey uh, started. And uh, noticing that, you know, I was asked to do certain things, the rituals, uh, uh, you know, the traditions and what they were asking me to do and how they were different from what my brother uh, was made to do. Uh, I started noticing these differences more and more. And I think that's where uh, and there was some amount of anger along with it that, you know, this is not right. You know, I, I felt as if, you know, this is not something uh, that's correct. And I think that's how my journey started with a lot of questions. And of course, that time, my worldview was very binary. Right. Uh, over the years, uh, of course, I have uh, understood that uh, feminism is just not about being a female and, you know, fighting for what it's what's the best for the females and things like that. Uh, so today uh, I look at feminism as more of, uh, you know, uh, understanding of how each one of us is so unique in so many ways. And uh, if that can be very holistically looked at and if that can be uh, honored and celebrated, I think that's, that's what, you know, makes my feminism today. Right. Absolutely. I agree with you so much. And there is one thing that comes to me as you share your experience and, you know, as 
Um, I also think about all of uh, the women I've asked this question to. And one thing stands out to me, you know, that we come to feminism less through books or theory or, you know, something that we read and more from lived experience. And that's when it turns from words, concepts into something much more concrete for us, much more, you know, something Mm -hmm. that we can almost experience. Right. And I think that's why it's, it's, it's less, it's not, not just about the mind. It's about having the embodied experience, basically, right. Experiencing all of those, uh, you know, and I think that's beautiful that you can relate it to as uh, young as 10 years old. And that's really young. Right. Um, And for me, it's been like looking back now I can see (laughs) the differences, but the realization probably did not come at that age. And it's just like, you know, it it, it feels like it's just part of something that I don't know and I have to learn. And it feels less like something that's probably not right with the world and more like something that I've not caught on with, you know, and I think that uh, is something that uh, stood out to me. So how does this belief system or identity as a feminist kind of go into your practice uh, as a mental health professional today? I think that forms the fabric of my work. Um, You know, um, you know, irrespective of the gender of the person that really forms the fabric of my work. Um, You know, in also offering a, a lens which is quite systemic. You know, so, you know, someone who is feeling marginalized because of what's happening. At the same time, somebody who's feeling privileged because of what's happening. And I think feminism allows me to then hold both these, uh, you know, sides uh, in a very uh, compassionate manner. Uh, where I'm also, uh, you know, uh, learning more about uh, how can... Uh, I present my feminism with less of anger and more of compassion. And how can I then, you know, make that individual be present with the lens of feminism? And that really helps me. Um, uh, Some time ago when I uh, got trained to become a queer affirmative counseling practitioner, uh, that was again something that, that, you know, changed my way of looking at things way more. And I think I embraced feminism way more after that. There was more of openness in me to even accept my own feminism uh, with understanding that, yeah, I mean, what I lived because of whatever uh, I I assumed myself to be uh, in terms of what was happening around me, uh, that, that anger was legitimate, for example. Uh, because many a times it would be labeled as why are you being so oversensitive for this this is how it happens right and my basic question was why as a girl should I be doing this when I don't see boys doing it right why am I you know why is that distinction so uh, important and maybe I did not have the language, the webidol to articulate it so well, to put it forth to my elders so very well. But I was sensing from within and that was um, instigating a lot of anger in me. So I think the feminism lens also, it, it allows me to hold myself also, my own feminism with um, a lot more compassion today than what it was earlier. Mm-hmm. 
Right. And, you know, I, I think it's so beautiful what you're talking about. And I'm just going to, you know, highlight a couple of points and I have a question, follow-up question for you. One is uh, that this entire concept of, you know, um, being the angry feminine and that, you know, also the binary, it's, it's so hard, right? Because that's the initial response, right? And there is this entire now discussion going on uh, that being in the profession that we are in, can we really function um, blind to these social issues that are going on? And what in that sense is uh, our sense of ethics or morality with, you know, what is our role in it? So do we function in a way that we do not see these systems in place? Or do we then take a stand? So is there really a neutral stand as somebody who's working in this profession? profession? You know, and I found what you said really beautiful because it's about being aware of the systemic angle of everything. And I think that's something I absolutely resonate with because it's really not about my personal ideology, but it is much more about you knowing whether whatever gender, whatever space, whatever space of privilege or not, you knowing that this is not just an individual challenge. This comes from systems. You know, and this can be applicable to so many issues. So I think I really resonate with that. And I just, and I, and you know, and that's the reason why I told you uh, the first time I heard you speak was at this conference. Um, I didn't know you much. We just had a brief interaction in a conference. And then I saw you on this online conference. And it just literally took me 10 minutes of listening to you to just be so admiring of your approach. Right. Because it's not coming from a space of I know it all. It's coming from a space of let's figure it out together, you know, and I think that's so key in this space because we're living in times that just are shifting, you know, so much and context and, you know, all of these things are so, so relevant in our, and we cannot really practice outside of that or in a bubble, you know, we are very much in this system. So I truly admire you for that. And I appreciate, you know, uh, that approach that you bring into your work. Um, the second thing that, you know, really struck me and is very interesting to me is your experience with uh, being trained as a queer affirmative counselor. I think I'm really interested to know about that, how that is influenced, because like I, the question that I asked you is about your feminist identity. But also, I know this is also something that's really important and that has influenced uh, the way you look at things. Right. So can you tell us a little bit more about it? What was that experience like? What did you bring in from there? Oh, I think uh, that definitely shifted the way I, uh, you know, looked at my therapy practice. Um, there was, uh, again, uh, um, it was, um, you know, enough weightage given to uh, the systems that are present right now. And what are some of the challenges that, you know, people go through? Uh, identifying with some of the challenges as well as identifying with certain privileges that I had. Uh, I think that that was the first time I looked at my privileges uh, more closely. And when I looked at my privileges, then that's when I realized that, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I think that's where um, my anger or, uh, you know, whatever that I felt that I didn't minimize it, but it's somewhere... Uh, uh, it it's it felt as if it was legitimate, like I said. But at the same time, I also felt that this is not the only uh, fight. It's not the only struggle. 
right? There is way more to this. So I think after that training, um, there was a lot of openness in me to welcome a lot of people into my practice. Um, yeah, we are trained to be non-judgmental, no doubt about that. You know, unconditional positive regard. I'm trained in uh, you know, the person-centered uh, approach uh, of therapy. So all of that definitely was already in place, but this lens helped me, you know, take it to take the whole of you know um, non-judgmental attitude to a totally different level. And it also trained me to also ask certain questions which I felt were difficult for me. So I think I, you know, I, you know, this was another uh, thing that I learned that it's okay to ask and it's okay to grow together. It's okay to say, I don't know about this. Can you tell me more? Mm, it's, it actually, uh, it was a very humbling experience. And that itself, you know, the fact that yes, you know, we have to do something together over here, somewhere transformed uh, a lot of my, uh, you know, techniques in therapy, a um, lot of the spaces that got created after that in uh, the counseling, in the therapy, uh, you know, interaction just increased that with that openness. Right, right. That sounds... Oh, sounds beautiful. And I think that's such a key part of, you know, continuing to be a professional in this space is this uh, sense of growth or sense of um, knowing more and more and more and, you know, widening your uh, context as much as possible. Um, I think I have to agree with uh, what you say that I think one of the initial milestones in any feminist journey is just learning about your own privilege. I think that's such a key, key milestone because until we are there, until, you know, um, that is really shown to us, uh, you know, it, it, it becomes hard, harder to see, like, you know, uh, this is one thing that I always say, stays with me that it's only the ones at the bottom who can really see the social structure. In many ways, because of our privilege, we do not have that lens as maybe somebody else would have. You know, and to acknowledge that, that what we see may not be the entire story. There is so much more to it, you know, because of my privilege, there are so many things that just do not seep into my lived experience, right? But they exist and that happens, you know, with a lot of us. And I think that's absolutely, I can so relate with that moment uh, in my own feminist journey as well, where I sat down and just wrote down the privileges that we have, you know, and as somebody who's upper caste, as somebody who's uh, heterosexual, as somebody who's in the institution of marriage, all of these things are privileges because they make you fit, right? In many ways, they make you fit, they open doors, right? Yeah, I, yeah, I think it also gave me a lot of, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, definitions and uh, a lot of language to talk about things uh, and allowing different perspectives to come in. Like, um, I remember the word that was given to me and that I used very often in my therapy space after the queer affirmative counseling practices training was about the charmed circle. Hmm. And what does this charmed circle of the society look like? And how, where do you fall? Like, are you inside? How you are always 
trying to make sure that this you are accepted by this charm circle and what's what's it like to not to be accepted by the charm circle and when i looked at my own journey then then yes the charm circle was asking me to do many things like for example a small thing like i remember uh, you know uh, my grandfather asking me to wear a bindi always uh, because i was a girl and uh, and that just and i i was like i said i think i was only 10 years old then said and wearing the bindi was like very small thing but it was it no longer was wearing a bindi for me but it was like why am i to wear a bindi like it's okay to wear a bindi i mean but why am i to wear a bindi when they spoke about the charm circle and uh, the uh, you know amount of uh you know negative self talk i remember having back then or even years later that what is the problem with wearing a bindi it's just a bindi after all and once you wear it everybody just accepts you and says you know you get you know so many things are said to you which feels so good right and slowly thereafter you know be it your hairstyle the way you dress up the choices that you make and then when they were so it gave me a lot of language to understand my own journey as well as uh, to talk about and reflect upon others journeys so yeah right absolutely i mean that's that's and that's exactly like the word right and that's always the one that says it in that it's a journey you know we definitely there is no such thing as a perfect feminist or a you know <laughs> complete like you've arrived <laughs> there is no such thing it's a constant phase of learning because even now there may be things i am not able to see uh, and to be open to that to be open to that oh yes i did not see that and you know there's no fixed way there's no fixed definition there is nothing uh, that is you know uh, fixed in any way right so absolutely i think that's uh, that's how i would also kind of almost see a parallel in many ways you know in the way you were trying to figure it out and i think that's the reason why i love asking this question okay so uh, let's move on to the second part of it which is motherhood right and what was your earliest understanding of motherhood as a child what did it mean to you and what does it bring to your mind the word mother itself oh i always wanted to be a mother Mm, I, it was uh, i don't know whether it was only conditioning i think it was way more than conditioning it always felt uh, uh, you know uh, like very fulfilling of sorts to be a mother uh, and motherhood mother uh, you know along with love care the word that comes to me is security some kind of an assurance of sorts that you know there would be somebody uh, you know there like as a child uh, to have a mother would be for me was to have somebody who would always be there for me like uh, while i'm growing up when i'm hungry if i'm hurt when i need a hug and and that's how my mother was or is rather even today that's how she is so i think she you know did frame a lot of my definition of uh what mother is like of course and yeah it's it's a very emotional uh thing for me to be a mother 
it's it almost uh, like even today when I I have a daughter and even today when I uh, see her grow up, it is so fascinating. It is so fascinating that every experience, uh, uh, you know, you know, as if it it, it is something. Uh, it, it, it's it's. I think there's a lot of the word that's coming to my mind is passion at this point. That I feel very passionately about. Um, the role of being a mother right and you know like you mentioned um you have a daughter so obviously you have you have your own journey of mothering would you like to share with us something about your journey what it's been like how does it feel like today you know yeah so she, she is a teenager today so there are times when uh, you know there are a lot of conversations that two of us speak quite a bit so there are a lot of conversations there's a lot of uh, she asks me for stories and that's uh, uh, that's so beautiful because i go back to my own teenage how it was how is it today you know and then how she negotiates on certain things you had this when you were this old then don't you think at this age i should have this when i am this old uh, those negotiations those uh, those uh, you know um, the conflicts that the two of us have um the idea of uh, safety for example uh, idea of uh, you know traveling alone for example uh, so all of these are uh, you know some things that take me back to my own journey of being a teenager at the same time i uh, i look at how beautiful it is to be a teenager in this day and age there's so many opportunities there's there's so much uh, that they can learn they, that they can be the exposure and mm, the articulation that they have i think i missed that i don't think i had that kind of articulation when i was <laughs> a teenager so they have uh, yeah so i find that beautiful right that sounds lovely because uh, i completely agree with you i think uh, last part of mothering is also to adjust to the fact that we grew up in a different time and they are growing up in a different time um so because they are a product of a different context they are at very different places we cannot really you know uh, either compare our lives to theirs it's just not fair it's just completely different right in so many ways uh, and i can relate to this bit you know so uh, one of my friends recently asked me about how does it feel to be a mother i always find this question very distressing because you know uh, primarily because i work in this area so i'm like kahan se shuru karu like what do i tell you like this is not a one sentence answer you know uh, but i think if i was absolutely forced to put it into one sentence i always say that it's the best thing i do and i don't say that because best because of some skill level or you know something of that sort that i feel i think it's best because um it's the most uh, you know and i i don't like the word rewarding and i'll tell you why because it's not always rewarding more often than not it's really hard <laughs> okay but overall i feel like this is the thing that has stretched me and expanded me the most um more than any other experience of my life good ways bad ways it's made me meet you know the dark side of me as well as you know push me on the other side so in that sense i feel like it's the best thing i've done you know and it's the best thing i do and even today i feel like it's the best thing i can do with my time <laughs> you know so if there is a question about it i know the best thing i can do is be with my son and i'm um, he's growing into this age where conversations are becoming more and more nuanced with him 
uh, and you know, I was telling my friend that he's just becoming such a nice person to hang out with. <laughs> like I'd rather be around him than not because for every situation, there is some strange observation, connection that I would not, my absolutely adult brain, which has its worldview would not make, you know, and that's always so refreshing to have uh, and have the connection be like, actually, he is right. <laughs> you know, that, is, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> challenges you right it does challenge me sometimes like oh yeah how did I miss this yeah I mean it it is it is yeah yeah I mean, so. so and how does so how does also being being in the mental health field affect your style of mothering is there an interaction there how does that you know does one affect the other in any way yeah it certainly does uh because a lot of times uh I hear my, uh, sometimes my uh, daughter comment that you probably see so many worlds of, you know, of, you know, different teenagers that you put it all together and you talk to me. Can you just talk to me? Like, <laughs> so, yeah, it definitely affects. And I think um, uh, there are times when I have to remind myself that, uh, my child uh, is, you know, not my client and hence the story is going to be very different and I don't have to wear the cap of being a counselor here at all. Uh, so how does it affect it? Yeah, by, you know, first by mm, uh, the, the response, by checking the response that I give, you know, sometimes. So when I'm giving the response, I check, you know, how am I responding uh, to my child at this point? Uh, because... Uh, you know, as a child, she has a very she has very different needs from me than what my client would have from me as a counselor. So yeah, removing removing that gap becomes very important for me. Uh, it also um, it also uh, when I'm when I am mothering my daughter, I also know that there are various stories that are playing in my mind. Right. So a lot of times I um, I know that I'm anchoring on to those mothering stories as well uh, of some of the things that some mothers did, right? Uh, and uh, and then I saw it happening in therapy space where it you know it bloomed beautifully well, right? And then I'm telling myself that yeah, I mean it becomes a resource for me. Definitely, it becomes a resource for me. At the same time, I also know that you know these two children are very different. My child is different. That child is different. So it may not work. But there are some smiles, uh, you know, which I can't share with my uh, daughter. But uh, in me, there are certain smiles that I'm having. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. This is this is beautiful. Yeah, this this connects so well. Oh, it, that happened in that narrative. This same thing happened in that narrative as well. So. Or, or something that uh, the client is presenting, oh, this happened with me, with my daughter and me. Like, so there are a lot of these overlaps, but they are uh, they're beautiful to watch. At the same time, I know I need to be careful in both the roles that I'm playing. They're asking myself, what am I doing right now? Right. No, absolutely. It's so beautiful the way you catch it. Uh, and how self-aware you are with this because I think this I would rate as the number one challenge as being somebody who works in the mental health sector and that is to know when to stop being a therapist. <laughs> you know? 
and that applies to all our relationships right even you know so much so with more with uh, being a mother but also with being a friend with being a partner you know and you have to catch yourself and be like no you do not have to be a therapist in this and you are allowed to have an opinion you allowed to have a human reaction and an emotional reaction you know so i think that's absolutely i agree with that and i love the way you put this narrative thing because and this is something that i've been thinking about for a while is how as therapists so much of the work we do is storytelling right we hear stories we tell stories and we try to transform the stories that are told right we try, try to shift the narrative as a way to feel more empowered as a way to see a different perspective these are all stories that we're kind of you know it's all narrative right and absolutely i've had that experience too where you know when i'm angry at something uh, in my personal life and i realize wait this is not about this <laughs> this is about <laughs> and something that has stayed with me for some reason and i also often feel that and that's why you know this process also of uh, being yourself in therapy uh, and also going to a case supervisor is so important because sometimes we hold on to things from that as well and there needs to be space to release that because in the moment maybe in the session is not a time for a response or a reaction but uh, we may often have responses and reactions that need to be addressed that we need to be aware of and that becomes one of the main responsibilities as somebody who's working in this space you know that we carry that clarity and i think it's absolutely brilliant that your daughter catches it on and tells you <laughs> <laughs> no she has asked me as old as i think she was 10 or 11 11 years old i guess i was angry and i was angry at her and she's saying hold on are you angry with me or with somebody else she's asking like okay i i know i i had to wait i took a took deep breath and said no i am angry with you i want to continue talking about what we were talking about so yeah but i'm glad she asks me that question i'm i mean i don't know if very actively i told her that you know this is what happens to me as a therapist or you know i don't know how it got communicated to her or she picked it up or you know because i i often she knows that i'm in personal therapy i she knows that i have a supervisor uh and uh she knows that i have a ritual that you know i do after i complete my sessions that how you know she knows that like like any other family member would do so i think in in being a therapist as you were speaking um what also came to my mind is that the are so many people who are actually you know helping me be a therapist mm, you know asking me the right questions at the right time for example or asking some friends who are regularly ask me i hope you are seeing your personal therapist uh, you know uh, you know how is your supervision going because they know that the work is confidential so i can't talk about work with them like they can talk very openly about work with me but i can't talk to, to talk about work with them you know with details and some things of course i can't so they have to they are inside of me but sometimes i'm just i just go to them and i said i need a hug and uh, and the narrative is something that is you know that is sitting heavily with me uh, uh, as a therapist that i've worked with it's uh, and i need a hug and yeah i can i i know that i will definitely get a hug from them meet my daughter my husband my friends so i think there is way more here that's holding me when i you know come in as a therapist 
I think there is there are just many people, and I I feel uh, you know grateful and fortunate to be one of those people's you know people to have the family members around me to hold me to be the therapist. Right, absolutely. I think that's beautiful. You know that yes, we are we are the sum of all the people that we love, right, and that we know, and that who've influenced us. So absolutely, we agree to that so much. And yeah, um, right. So another question I had for you, Snehalis. Uh, okay, so before I can ask this question, I'm going to request you to just. help me uh, give the audience a context of uh, the kind of population you work with uh, specifically the work that you do with perinatal mental health maybe just give us a sense of what your day looks like what does you know what happens you know that kind of sets some context sure so um i work with a, a varied age range actually uh, i i work with very small children as old as 4 or 5 years old uh, to teenagers young adults um, you know adults uh, you know post uh, 55 years of age as well uh, i don't work you know with people post 60 years of age uh, but yeah from maybe from 4 years to 60 years is the kind of age range that i deal with um because of i'm doing this uh, fellowship now and learning uh, you know more about perinatal mental health so now right now i'm working with um quite a lot of uh, you know families uh, who are in the process of uh, you know conceiving a child uh, a pregnant um, after delivery till the child is around 4 years of age so that's the kind of uh, work that i am concentrating on right now because of my condition right and just for the audience to understand as well uh, what do you mean when you say perinatal mental health right and what do those issues look like and what does that look like so uh perinatal perinatal if you uh, just break it down in very simple language it is when a family decides to have a baby right and uh, then right from the idea to till the time it's conceived and delivered and the baby comes into this world till the baby is say 4 years of age now that's the that's the uh, uh, time that we are looking at where mental health plays a very important role because it's uh, because if you know we just look at the womb as a place a, you know where um, the child uh, grows is inside you know uh, and it's growing but that's not actually how it is right it is if you if you actually look at it it's right from the idea of having a child is when actually the womb begins and you know physically it might be in the female body right but it's the entire system around the female uh, that is actually taking care of the baby thinking about the baby making changes in their lives uh, for the baby deciding you know taking uh, you know uh, you know financial decisions uh, you know or, you know nutrition wise decisions you know other things that are planned in the life in their lives so it's just not the female body which has the womb but it's it's actually uh, the entire 
you know, process of it. So perinatal mental health gives us an opportunity to look at mental health in the entire process of, you know, from the idea of having a baby till the baby comes into this world, till the baby is a toddler, you know, you know in a way, uh, uh, moving around. Right. Right. I hope I answered your question. Beautifully so, beautifully so. And, you know, it kind of leads me on to the next question, which is, so you do, not, do you restrict your work with only the mothers? Or does your work extend that? And what's that like? So, uh, no, actually, it is the uh, mother and uh, also the partner, the husband. Right, which uh, you know, who also seeks therapy space when the child comes into the picture, or uh, you know, in this realm of uh, perinatal mental health. So, uh, and anybody from the family who is affected, right? Because uh, if the mother is going through, let's suppose the mother is going through some you know mental health issues, right? Um, it cannot be that the partner is not affected because of that. The partner will also get affected because of that. All other stakeholders will also get affected because of that. And the idea, so my therapy space opens up for all those who are also affected because of a mental health issue that probably is diagnosed for the mother. That's it. And then look at you know, what's happening to the, uh, to the partner, for example. Right, what is the partner going through? Because it's a lot of uh, uh, it's a lot of emotional load. Because uh, there are a lot of changes that take place when once the baby comes into this world, for example. And if the mother is going through something, if the baby is going through something, then it's important that we also hold the partner or the husband. Right. I think that's that's so important. And I think that is the reason why I wanted you to come on and talk about this, because uh, so what you're talking about essentially is partner postpartum mental health issues. Hmm. Right. And as an example that I took. Yeah, as an example. Yes. And this can range. So it can be partner postpartum depression. It can look like, um, you know, adjustment issues. And you can tell us more about what that can look like and what that looks like. But what I find is really important to bring into the discussion is that mental health is not focused on the individual who is giving birth. Because, it, again, it's not individual focus. It's the system that's shifted. Right. So that's, I think that's so important. And that's something that, you know, um, I was aware of to some extent. But I think it's so important to also talk about in your work, what does that look like? How does it present? And if you can just take us through maybe starting with uh, what does uh, what do these kind of issues look like in a partner? And then we can also explore the other stakeholders who get affected. Yeah. So, for example, a partner could feel absolutely burnt out after the point, right? Where uh, the partner could feel uh, demotivated, for example, to go back to work. Uh, or could feel very lethargic 
uh, or could feel uh, that they are not able to connect to the baby or uh, not able to connect to the partner, right? Feeling, you know, the, uh, the exhaustion, the irritation all throughout. So these are some of the symptoms that you get to see in partners as well. Uh, and that is, so when we are looking at uh, it from the lens of perinatal mental health, then we also look at, we, it becomes important to educate the partner saying that, you know, it's not easy for you to, right? Because many a times uh, the mother and the baby are taken care of, right? Because, you know, that becomes the prime focus and, and the partner or the husband is left out. Uh, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, there are expectations that they also have to fulfill. And that also can then in turn pressurize them. So it's not easy. So some of the things that you get to see are these, like, you know, this classic sign of uh, burnout. Right? They're not able to, uh, and yeah, and, and many a times how it gets presented is uh, that I don't want to do anything. You know, just can can I just exit from here because this is just too much for me to handle. It's, it becomes very overwhelming. They feel anxious as well. They don't know if what they're doing is right or wrong. Right? So in a way, um, I've heard them say that nobody told me that fatherhood would look something like this. Right, um, and often uh, then you, I need to educate them, saying that uh, yeah, I mean it is difficult. It is not easy. Sometimes just opening that space to hear them out. Right, just hear you know talk about your emotions. What are you going through at this point? Is sometimes a good enough place to begin? Um, you know, just empathizing with them then psychoeducating them about what they could be going through. You know, if the need be, um, also have a psychiatric intervention for them. Right? And helping them understand that you also need to take care of your mental health. Especially COVID times were not easy. When the babies were delivered during the COVID times, as it is, other family members could not be present with the family units to give them the help that generally is given. I know I'm making a very generalized statement over here, but people who had this opportunity or at least had this, you know, they, they believe that their parents could come to help them out, for example. And that, that did not happen. Then every, a lot fell onto the partner. Right? So, yeah, because uh, it is tiring and to then to bring that lens of, uh, you know, yes, how it's difficult during COVID times. Yes, there is a lot of, you know, workload on you. Because a lot of, uh, a lot of companies also do not give a paternity leave. Right? So there's hardly, you know, a gap of one or two weeks that they have between, you know, the delivery of the baby and joining the work. And yeah, and those are, uh, I've seen some of the couples go through very difficult times. 
Right. I'll just kind of, you know, add on here and you can tell me if that sounds something that you can see as well. And that is that one of the primary premise of um, why this period is seen differently uh, for women who, uh, and here I'm just talking about women who give birth and go into that transition, is there are two things that are at play over here. One is uh, the transition in the social role. So you move on from this individual and now you're a mother and there are all of these. So it's a complete shift in terms of your rule, right? Uh, and the second thing that plays up over here is the changes in hormones and the flux. Uh, so there is a biological angle to it. And then there is this, you know, uh, psychosocial angle to it, which is uh, one is what do I expect motherhood to look like? And what are others now expecting of me because I'm a mother? And what am I, you know, and that transition and shift and, you know, grabbing onto your sense of self. Uh, and as I was kind of, you know, curious and reading also about what this looks like in partners, I understand that these both are true for partners as well, right? Although they are not the ones giving birth, there's a lot of research to show that there is a lot of hormonal changes happening in the partner as well. You know, and of course, the psychosocial angle is there as well. So in that sense, we have the same amount of vulnerability. You know, probably excluding the physical experience, everything else remains as stressful for them as well. And as positional for them as well, because you are also looking at, like you said, a role shift, you know, and it look simply like, is it okay for me to now go for like a two-day trip with my friends? And, you know, and I don't know if this is something that you see, but I this is something I observe in the people around me. There's also, there is also a very quick to judge thing about you're that kind of father. There's also labeling that happens there very quickly. Uh, you know, and that may be... Uh, and the other thing that I, I heard, and this is someone who shared it with me, is that, you know, there's also this element of for the longest time, especially if it's the first child. In many ways, you are the focus of your partner. And a child in many ways dethrones you in that sense as well. <laughs> there your partner is now completely consumed by just, you know, uh, with the baby. So there is also grief there. Because that primacy of the relationship is lost somewhere you know we also know um, frequency of sex shifts during this period that itself can add a lot of complication uh, in fact i read a very interesting research recently which said that if you if the frequency of sex goes down during this period it's actually a sign that your relationship is good so the healthier relationships will have a natural dip you know, obviously, because we're probably making space for all of these transitions and changes and, you know, priorities shift a little bit. Uh, and that's so counterintuitive because I also know that one of the things that can stress couples out at this time and affect the relationship is this trying to come to terms with the new um, so-called, you know, a thing of frequency or, or intimacy. That's also a big part of the transition. 
right? And that leads to uh, some resentment as well, you know, miscommunication, frustration, all of those things that add on. Yeah, yeah. In the way the, uh, like the dynamics when they shift, right? The frequency of being sexually intimate changes. Uh, there are also other adjustments that the couple is doing. Right, uh, like uh, it could be a small thing of who's going to change the nappy. Right, that is also happening, which is also creating some amount of sometimes conflict. Right, and some and so, uh, so the interplay of all of these things come out when the the couple is you know welcoming the new life into them, the baby into their lives, right? And dealing with them. So uh, yes, needless to say, the guilt that you spoke of, right? Is it okay for me to go and you know uh, go for two, you know, two hours out to, you know, to chill, right? Is that okay when my partner is with the baby and I know that my partner is stressed out, right? Uh, and not, and there is grief of because there are so many losses along with the gains that have happened. So a lot of time, my work entails uh, opening space for both. That yes, when the world is busy celebrating the gains that have happened, right? What about the losses that you're going right going through right now, right? How do you place these losses? you know, at, on the canvas of the gains that's shown by the society, the charm circle, right? So like when they say, like I said, that they, I hear fathers say, I never knew fatherhood, you know, looked like this. I've even had mothers say, I never knew. Nobody told me that motherhood is like this. Had somebody told me this, I don't know if I would have taken the decision of being a mother or not, right? Because there's a lot of hard work. There's a lot of hard work and it's just not physical hard work, but there's a lot of emotional labor. There are so many physiological changes that both the partners go through, right? So, uh, um, so yeah, so grief is one thing that definitely comes up, right? And, and like you say, the primacy of the relationship shifts. And needless to say, the young one requires a lot of time, energy, efforts there, attention there. But at the same time, how do you ask for the attention that you're looking for? How do you look for those assurances that you need from your partner saying that, you know, yeah, my partner is there for me in the whole thing, right? There is a room for me, a space for me to say, uh, because I've also heard some of the fathers say that I don't know if I can even afford to fall sick. Right? And that's so much of a pressure. Uh, I mean, and to say that, okay, then if you were to fall sick, what do you think might happen? And explore those fears with them. Right? It, that's what the therapy space, you know, uh, is used for. Like, you know, and because nobody else is engaging with them probably. Because, the, uh, you know, in friends also, how much vulnerable can you become? Like you rightly said, right? There is an expectation that this is the kind of father you need to be, or this is the kind of mother you need to be. So you really don't know if you can really open up and say, uh, you know, this is what I'm going through. This is what is stressing me out, right? Like uh, finance is stressing me out, for example, right? How do I plan? 
you know so that vulnerability sometimes goes for a toss there because you know uh, uh, you know oftentimes uh, strength is associated you know with how you don't speak about it and that's what you know patriarchy does to men especially that they they, they don't have the room to speak about you know uh, you know how sometimes they are also not feeling okay with what's happening and they want to talk about it they want to cry about it so you know I about the losses this just absolutely before we even go on to the uh, kind of patriarchy and feminist angle a couple of more observations here which just come up as you talk one is that this point that you made about uh, paternity leave right and just 15 days right and to also look at how in many ways that binds fathers because we all know that an infant probably 6 months up to a year requires a lot of constant care 24/7 care right and um if the even if imagine how this partner wants to be supportive in these shifts the night shifts you know how can he if he has to go to work the next day and how can the other partner who has compassion even expect your partner to be awake if you know that they have to go to work the next day you know and this is how these kinds of things and that's why i always say it's such a political issue because there is no space for even a willing father to actually make this transition to making it a 50 and that's why policy is very important right because the best uh, individual intervention is going to fall flat because essentially the truth of the matter is yes your partner needs more support well but i need to go to work tomorrow there is no you know it's it's a kind of impasse almost uh, right and these things do uh, in that sense play up and you know uh, are activated over there right there's so much around um and what you said is this space or the validation you know the validation that yes this is <laughs> not you know you're not less of anything to admit uh that it's not easy you know i think also forms a very important part of uh this entire complication or experience uh, for men as well right it does and a lot of times uh, uh, you know because they don't get to hear from other men as well they are also not okay speaking about it very openly so you really have to say that yes you need a psychiatric intervention over here because i'm seeing signs of depression right you need to take help right your anxiety is like underlying all the time in everything that you're doing you probably would need something over here you need to take care of yourself right that is uh, you know because it because mental health a lot of times is seen with so much of taboo that it is then am i not functional enough that i have to take uh, uh, these uh, meds to be okay but to say that no you are functional right these are some of the symptoms that we are seeing over here can we get them assessed to make sure that you are available for your family unit right and that it's important and how it you know goes a long way in taking care of yourself so actually talking about self care more and more 
right? What are some of the things that will help you take care of yourself when you have to sustain this role of being a parent? Right? You know this is what your partner needs from you. And interestingly, when you said 50-50, right? Sometimes I even have to break that myth that it cannot be 50-50. Because how would you measure? Right? It is your perception that it is not 50-50. But can it actually be 50-50? Right. And I think, yeah, I think that's a very important point because what you're saying is it has to feel, and you know, maybe what they mean by 50 is that it has to feel fair. And Correct. So that's the perception that we're talking. Yeah, yeah. Some balance. And I think, you know, the other thing that I just remembered, <laughs> the other point I want to make was when you said, right, this fear to fall sick, uh, I think that's so telling because... It is the fear then in, in many ways to just be human. To just have space to be human because being ill is not just, you know, you just sometimes don't need a, you don't need to physically fall ill, but maybe you just need a day. You need a day. And then this space beginning to feel like you cannot be human and you cannot want to need these things can be, like you said, so very tied to what you're talking about as self-care. Right? And it is creating that space. Yeah, and this is where these are some of the hints that you know I often pick up to understand that oh, they are really expecting a lot out of themselves in this particular role. To then then uh, you know do a reality check with them. That you know uh, you know uh, how can we define your role here? What are some of the indicators that tell you that you're good? You are being a good father according to you or you're being a good mother according to you what are those indicators and then they say something like this that no i should not fall sick then to actually ask them that is it possible for any human being to not fall sick so is this a fear that you're speaking about and and engaging with them in that kind of helping them articulate those emotions which sometimes can be difficult to speak about because you are in this role of a parent now you are in charge of another human being so how you know things cannot be such that you know because more often than not parents are there to give the best to their child right and uh, uh, and sometimes in giving the best Right? They often forget that what's required for them. And that's where I bring in self-care very often. Also bring, you know, also, you know, uh, also handhold them into understanding that when you demonstrate self-care, right, you your partner will also take it from there. Your child will also take it from there. There will be a language that will be built right from the beginning that will be of self-care. And that will get integrated in your parenting aspect as well. And, and, uh, and giving them this, um, you, know, uh, you know, this aspect also sometimes is helpful because then they're like, we have to tell them, try it out. Right? Try it out and see how it feels like. What, in, you know, what amount of self-care do you believe you can do in, given the roles that you're playing, right? Right, listing down all the roles that you're playing right now. Right, and how do you prioritize these roles? So, um, yeah, so when these statements, like when they say, like, uh, it helps me understand that, okay, this could be that there is a lot of fear here. 
what's happening there right there is how much of yeah so these become some of the indicators too absolutely and you know um it's not just the partner gets impacted okay so and i know uh, we were talking about this and you know if you can just tell us also about what does it look like for the other people who are involved in the family system when there is something like this going on you know when the system is yeah like often when i'm working with the older sibling like i said i work with you know varied uh, age range so when i'm working with a uh, 8 uh, year old or so or 7 year old sometimes and they are talking and there is uh, a sibling younger sibling in the picture and this child is then observing all that that is happening with the new child coming in the second child coming in right and um the unavailability of the parent at that time so you know of course the the parents are busy with the new child but the old, from the eyes of the older child right and um it's very tricky over there because for a 7 or a 8 year old you cannot psychoeducate and say that this is what the parents are going through you know it's it's sometimes it's just to observe that okay this is what is happening with the child and then talking to the parents about what can be done in order to take care of themselves right using i'm i mean this was an eye uh, opening thing for me that because with the perinatal thing i was only looking at you know the the, the fathers mothers uh, the the babies the newly formed uh, you know family unit and all of that uh, but it, this is a space where i'm working with the child and the child is also talking about what's happening over there and sometimes then going back to the parents and you know you know checking with them that how are they doing are they doing okay how are they taking care of themselves earlier i wouldn't have done these interventions i guess now i am asking those very specific questions that i would ask uh, you know uh, you know the parents that like even if the child is a second child but i i can't i mean this is a learning for me that i can't assume that because they've already had a child <laughs> there is there is you know but still there are you know those changes are again going to happen in their lives like they are happening in their lives with the with the sibling of course i have to you know create that space for the sibling to just hear the sibling out as to what are they trying to say what are they missing out on is there are they experiencing abandonment because of that how are they looking at the younger sibling how are they helping them connect with the younger sibling right what are some of the things that you do with the younger sibling right what happens to you over there right so those are some of the things that uh, i notice also comes into play mm, you know yeah right and i think that's so important because again the view being a view of a system family as a unit right so you're not just focusing on one and you can actually see how all of these interact with each other right um i have some experience working as uh, a child psychologist as well and i know that this period is often fraught for you know uh, older siblings or second or third children especially you know primarily these reasons 
uh, right? And primarily for the reason why, you know, also the connection between, um, and that's the whole thing, you know, I have this whole thing against compartmentalization because kind of looked at um, for example when I was working with children I was focused on that it it's focused very much on the child but one of the biggest things that can impact a child is the mother's mental health or the father's so in that sense can you separate it really you know because imagine even when we talk about childhood trauma so much of it is, if you look at, you know, take the vantage point slightly behind, you see, okay, the parents were also going through their own share of things, right? So more and more you see it's like systemic, you know, not this one isolated, you can't just, so again, my biggest uh, uh, learning from this being that you can't work with the individual when there is a whole, you can, but you can't fix, you know, or you can't really, you know, effectively uh, transform, right? So change is not just individual. It needs to happen at both ends. So we have more support systems. We have more resources, you know, for all of this, uh, the entire kind of not only the developmental state or the lifespan of this relationship, but also across uh, the board with every member. Right. And I think what I would also like to, uh, uh, you know, where I agree completely to what you are saying. Uh, one more thing about is, one more thing is about the uniqueness of every system. Right. I often in my, uh, uh, in my uh, work, I'm looking for that uniqueness in every system because uh, there, uh, there are some ways in which, uh, you know, each one of them are connecting to one another even these changes are happening. So oftentimes I, you know, I check with the family that, you know, before this, you know, has there been any, you know, life-changing event that has happened? And how has the child reacted to it? Because the, 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 what the child is reacting to is very often the, the situation. And what the, the child is coming into the therapy space because uh, the child is showing some, you know, uh, you know behavior which is not appropriate or something. So it, often the attitude is fix my child. And like you rightly said, because I can't fix the child. Right? I mean, there is nothing to be fixed in the child per se. I mean, that's where I would begin, right? That's saying that your child, I mean, somewhere you need to be thankful to the child because the child is showing you that there is something that is happening in your system, which is not okay. Can we look at the system? Like, can we look at the situation? There is a problem situation. And then when, when I, and even for me to say that, okay, let me look at the problem situation. Very often I start with the strengths of this, uh, you know, of this unit. What are the strengths of this unit? How, you know, uh, what are the unique things? Uh, what are the unique stressors that this family holds at this point? Right. And how is this, how are these stresses affecting each one of them? And that often gives me an understanding of what could the child be seeing or doing or, you know, understanding how is the child perceiving the whole thing. So you are absolutely right. As long, I mean, when I'm working with the child, I'm working with the child, but the lens has to be a systemic lens where I'm looking at, you know, each one who's involved as a stakeholder in the situation. And there are sometimes even grandparents who are there. And 
sometimes some things that are happening to the grandparents also is affecting the whole situation right but of course we were talking about perinatal mental health and hence i did not go into that and i know your question was more to other stakeholders but yeah so i have also seen uh, older siblings speak about what they have gone through in their childhood when the second sibling uh, came in and what happened to their dynamics between them and their parents and how it it is affecting their relationship today right absolutely i think this is all so intimately connected and you know i mean i just absolutely love uh, the way you articulate the entire system i think it's always difficult it's easy to use jargon it's hard to put things simply and i think that's the beauty of what you do uh, you know you articulate it in a way that makes absolute sense you know that yes this is what you know i would think is important in this situation right and trailing off i just you know maybe my last question to you is we talked about self care we talked about you know all of these seeing all of these experiences i'm just interested to know how do you care for yourself how do you you know uh, this is a lot and these are a yeah. lot of stories to carry this is a lot uh, you know for anyone who's listening you know how do you stay you <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of things that i uh, i do for myself which uh, helps me uh, kind of take care and sometimes i at least i have told myself at least i should be able to uh, become aware that the self care is not enough that's a good enough place to be right rather than trying to uh, you know have a a set formula for it because i've also noticed that uh, probably each day is different and uh, you know where i can have the routines but i also need to have these indicators in place which is which are telling me that i have not done enough of self care today or i have done enough self care today so um, yeah a lot of things like uh, physical exercises because this is something that i've learned um, over the years that that is one thing that you know keeps me going and as i'm reading more and more of you know uh, the, the research based work and how uh, you know the, the physical exercises actually help you have you know regulate your hormones what happens because I, i you know i have experienced it and i'm also learning it so my faith in it has has increased so there is a physical exercise that uh, you know that is in place uh, in my routine uh, for every day uh, i'm of i love to eat food so i i i love often times i know that that sometimes becomes an indicator when i i feel that my appetite has gone low then i have to tell myself that okay what can you do now to take care of yourself looks like there is something that is bothering you so maybe then taking a walk or just you know you know listening to something that is funny uh, you know helps me uh, to you know just be with you know what i am going through and even if sometimes it could be just sitting down and you know writing down what is uh, coming to my mind like a, i often call it the brain dump just do a brain dump yeah and uh, take it out or you know take it all out sometimes it could be just the unfairness of the whole uh, world that is there around me and i just want to take it out and i feel better after that uh, sometimes you know crying out loud makes me feel better mm, so, uh, breathing exercises help me mm, 
my music help me, helps me. Um, sometimes uh, artwork like origami helps me. Mm, having conversations with really young ones. So for a long time, I used to teach as well as do my therapy. Uh, and the reason I told myself, you know, was that I need that space where I am interacting with very young minds, you know, who are completely, you know, uh, full of, you know, they're full of zest. And they're coming in and, you know, throwing things at you. And that was, that's the, because that was the best part of being a teacher. Right. So with the subject, there's, there's so many fun stories and their experiences and laughter that used to come into my room. And I often do that. Then, then I then then I would randomly call my daughter's friends to come over you know, and probably come and sing or do something or have a word with them. You know, so I think uh, interacting with young minds, you know, uh, about certain things also has uh, I've seen that you know it charges me up. Then mm, conversations, you know about my Mondays, so conversations are some things that <laughs> keep me recharged. So yeah, these are some of the things, but they change, Lina. I mean, every day looks very different uh, in terms of self care, but I do devote some time which is meant for my self care and just ask myself what do I want to do right now or do I just want to be with myself? I just uh, follow the gut at that time. I think that's beautiful. And I think this is something that I usually uh, think of because like you said, every day looks different. Uh, I think uh, we generally live seasonal lives as well. Uh, you know. And uh, one thing, one sentence that comes to me is uh, how I tell myself as well is some days are for the world, some days are for myself. So... <laughs> Uh, for the days for myself to be able to have the days for the world as well you know and have that uh, kind of balance and just have an absolute list toolkit ready so you know it's not about doing everything every day uh, or at a fixed period but just having everything that I can reach into and you know use right because it can it can be different aspects maybe I'm just missing something sensory maybe it is something to do with rest Sometimes it is true with connection. So self-care for me begins with first identifying mm, what am I missing today? You know, what am I not done in a long time? And sometimes it's literally spending a day wandering with no agenda. And it feels like self-care because it's basically randomness, you know. And as humans, we crave randomness as well, right? And sometimes the company of every day and just knowing everything can also take a toll on you right so for me sometimes it looks like wandering and you know being open to not knowing what I'm going to have for dinner and just having the first thing that I see while I'm walking right? <laughs> random stuff like that right so, yeah 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 those are the things yeah I mean thing with myself yeah I mean it absolutely uh yeah the randomness like you spoke of right that also fills me with energy Wow. Uh, when I see some randomness around and I'm like, I'm, sometimes I know, oh, I'm craving for it right now. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. I'm so, I'm actually feeling sad to end the conversation <laughs> because it's going so well. So it's always such a delight to talk to you. Uh, it's exactly the feeling of stretching the coffee into lunch. <laughs> mm. <laughs> uh, but uh, here I leave you with the hope that at some point we have a chance to speak again.
uh, have a chance oh. to have uh, your debut debut and have a second year <laughs> 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 yeah you know i'm uh, i'm i'm so so thankful uh, that you gave me this opportunity meena because it was absolutely uh, yeah, it felt like a place where i could speak my heart out so it felt very safe <laughs> i'm glad i'm glad so thank you very much and uh, i hope you have Thanks. a lovely day you too bye